Buddha, which I have chosen, is um, just has the name of the person that it's been given to. The Buddha is talking to a certain person, and the certain person is called Sunakata. So the whole thing is called the Sunakata Sutta. Now this uh, Sunakata was once a monk, and then he disrobed, and uh, now he's asking questions of the Buddha. And many of these discourses are in answer to questions. So the um, Buddha, not often he sat down just to give a discourse. He waited to be asked a question. Thus have I heard. This is the way many of the suttas start. On one occasion, the Buddha was living at Vesali in the great wood in the gabled hall. So I think we've had one like that before, where that's where he was. I mentioned that gabled hall, I think, before. Now, on that occasion, final knowledge has been declared by many monks in the Buddha's presence. Verses destroyed, the, li- the holy life has been lived. What was to be done is done. There is no more of this to come, so I understand. Now, final knowledge means nibbana. Just another way of expressing it. And one can never ask anybody, have I actually attained nibbana? One has to declare it. And one has to declare, and this holds true for any of the experiences one has in meditation, or on the past moment. One has to declare them, one has to uh, describe them. And then the um, teacher hopefully knows whether it's true or not. And this declaration which is mentioned here is the traditional way of saying this. Verses destroyed, which means one doesn't have to come back here. One hasn't got to go through this again. The holy life has been lived and what needed to be done has been done, and there's no more of this to come. This is a traditional way of declaring one has reached arahanship, total enlightenment. That is, one doesn't have to go through this again. One has, so to say, graduated. One doesn't have to go through all these adult education classes again. Now, Sunakata, the literature we heard, and Lichavi is just the uh, clan that he comes from. The Lichavis were quite famous at the time of the Buddha. They often mentioned they were rich and um, um, sort of playboys, rich playboys, the Lichavis. And they're quite famous. So this was, he was one of them. So Nakata the Lichavi heard. And uh, he heard this. It seems that final knowledge has been declared by many monks in the Buddha's presence. Verses destroyed, the holy light has been lived, what was to be done is done, there's no more of this to come. So I understand. Now then, Sunakata Zalichavi went to the Buddha, and after paying homage to him, he sat down at one side, and when he had done so, he said to the Buddha, It seems that final knowledge has been declared by many bhikkhus, by many monks, bhikkhus monks. Now, the bhikkhus, sir, who declare this final knowledge in the Buddha's presence, do they declare this rightly, or are there some who declare this final knowledge owing 
to overestimation. Now this is a question which I think also comes to our mind, although we probably don't know anybody who has said that they are enlightened, but if we do know anybody and have heard of anybody, is it really true? Are these people really enlightened? I mean, they're saying this, and um, well, one, of, for instance, uh, was Rajneesh, who said that he was fully enlightened. And so I'm sure that many people thought, well, is he or isn't he? And this is what this Sunatata literally says. Are these fellows really saying the truth, or are they just overestimating their achievement? So now the Buddha answers. Some of the bhikkhus who declare this final knowledge in my presence do so rightly, and some do do so owing to overestimation. So in other words, some do it because they're really enlightened and others don't. Now, herein, when bhikkhus declare final knowledge rightly, it is true. But when they do it owing to overestimation, then the Buddha thinks thus, the Tathagata thinks thus, let me teach them the Dhamma. Now, Tathagata is a word that the Buddha uses about himself when he speaks about himself in the third person. And it means the one gone such. Gata is gone and Tata is such. The one gone such, which is um, another way of saying suchness or the one in suchness, where there is, um, it's not really a person. And he, he often talks about himself as I, but he also talks about himself as a Tathagata, both. Um, others do not address him as a Tathagata. He talks about himself as that. Because it's not a title, it's an explanation of um, total enlightenment. So then he thinks, well, if they've done it owing to overestimation, I will teach them the Dhamma. And so it is here. But then, certain misguided people formulate a question and then they come to the Tathagata to ask it. Now, Sunakata, though the Tathagata thinks thus, let me teach them the Dhamma, yet he comes to think otherwise. Well, what the Buddha is saying that if people ask foolish questions, he's not going to teach them. That's what he's saying here. Because they, they come to formulate a question not because they really want to know. Some mouse. <laughs> big mouse. <laughs> Wombat. <laughs> not because they want to know and practice, but it's only because they want to either trip the Buddha up, or they want to voice their skeptical doubt, or they want to check out against other teachers. I mean, it's exactly what happens today, no difference, exactly. And um, so he doesn't answer. Now the Buddha had four ways of answering questions. The first way was briefly, yes or no, if that would lend itself to the question. The second way was in detail, giving a detailed answer. The third way was by asking a counter question. How do you feel about and the, the fourth way was by keeping quiet. If the question was so put, as he of course could tell right away, that it was not in order for the person to practice, but just one of those other reasons I've mentioned, then he wouldn't answer. So now he's telling this to Nakata, 
that um, he would teach these people Dhamma, but not if they ask questions which are um, not conducive to practice. Then the Sunakata says to the Buddha, this is the time, this is the time for the Blessed One to teach the Dhamma. Having heard it from the Blessed One, the bhikkhus will surely bear it in mind. So he's trying to induce the Buddha to give some Dhamma discourse. And the Buddha says, then listen to Nakata and heed well what I shall say. Yes, Venerable Sir, the Nakata is a literary reply to the Blessed One. So then the Buddha said, there are, for Nakata, these five courts of sensual desire. What for five? Forms cognizable by the eye that are wished for, desired, agreeable, likable, connected with sensual desire and provocative of lust. Sounds cognizable by the ear, odors cognizable by the nose, flavors cognizable by the tongue, and tangibles cognizable by the body that are wished for, desired, agreeable and likable, connected with sensual desire, provocative of lust. These are the five causes of sensual desire. Now that's quite clear. We've already talked about that yesterday, isn't it? I don't have to explain that, do I? I mean, it's quite obvious what that's all about. It is possible that some person here may esteem worldly material things. When a person esteems worldly material things, only talk of that kind interests that person, and his thinking and exploring is in line with that, and he frequents that kind of person, and he finds satisfaction through that person. But when there is talk about the imperturbable, he will not hear or give ear or establish his mind in knowledge. He does not frequent that kind of person and finds no satisfaction through him. So the Buddha is now saying, if one is interested in the world, in worldly and material things, then one is only interested in talking about that. And vice versa, of course, which comes later, people in our very material world often find it difficult to um, have conversations with, uh, about spiritual matters because it's difficult to find somebody. And spiritual matters are not necessarily esoteric. Esoteric is not, not always spiritual. It could possibly be. So, now that kind of person finds only satisfaction when his thinking and exploring is along worldly material matters. Now, this is an important thing because as we start on a spiritual path or sort of going along it, we need to protect the mind from being worldly and uh, materially interested all the time. Because when we explore only along those lines, we will find that what we explore. So what would we find? We find the world and its material benefits, possibly. We might find out how to make money. Well, there's nothing wrong with making money. But if that's the only thing we do, it's not going to be very satisfactory. So if we are really interested in the spiritual path and the spiritual salvation, in apostrophes, then... That's where we should go for our exploration. It means where we direct the mind, that's where we're going to be. So here he's talking about the one who's interested in the world. Now he says, 
when there's talk about the imperturbable, he will not hear or give ear or establish his mind in knowledge. The imperturbable is an expression which is sometimes used for the four rupa jhanas, for the four fine material meditative absorptions. Um, for some reason, the footnote here says that it, in this case, the um, fourth jhana and the first two formless absorptions, the fifth and the sixth, are meant. Why that is so, I don't know. Usually the first four are meant, sometimes all eight are meant. In other words, the imperturbable always refers to the jhanas, whichever ones, it doesn't matter, really. It always refers to that. So if somebody should talk about them, such a person will not hear. They can hear the words, but it doesn't go in. It's very interesting that I'm sure everybody has noticed that already in themselves. We only hear what we really want to hear. We can hear the words, but it doesn't, doesn't happen. And sometimes I have met up with people who hear a sentence or several sentences and it comes out, they express the mind then and the sentence has been changed around to the point where the understanding is the opposite. As if the mind contains a scrambler. Now it's not unusual. It's because the uh, inner emotions are going in that way. So we don't always hear what's being said. It's a very interesting phenomenon. Of course, the less emotions, the more better we can hear, of course. One would think that the better the hearing is one could hear, but that's not, that's not true. But the less emotions we have, the better we can hear. So he wouldn't hear anything about the imperturbable because he's not interested. Now, just as a man, long absent from his own village or town, seeing somebody who had recently left that village, would ask him about the well-being of his village, about its state of plenty, its health, and that man told him about it. How do you conceive this, Sanakata? Would that man hear, give ear, establish his mind and knowledge? Would he frequent that man? and find satisfaction through him? Yes, Venerable Sir. So the Buddha is very um, much into giving similes of a very um, practical nature so that the listener can really understand what is being said. So he says to him, you know, if somebody came from your own town and would tell you, uh, and you would ask, how are, the, how are the people, would you listen? And he said, yes, yeah, sure. So too it is possible that a person would listen to a worldly person but not to another one. So this person who is interested in worldly and material things should be known as a person not bound by the fetter of the imperturbable who esteems worldly things. Now that sounds very strange, that sentence. But what it's all about is that until we shed the fetters along the line of the past moments, and there are ten fetters altogether, and the first three past moments shed only five, and then the last one sheds the, the rest of the five, we are bound by fetters. So the Buddha even calls the jhanas fetters. Of course, they are fetters of a different kind. They are not material. 
So they are immaterial fetters because they do not necessarily mean enlightenment at all. So one should know such a person that is, is not bound, he has no interest in the imperturbable, but he esteems worldly things, not bound by the fetter of the imperturbable. He esteems worldly things. When a person esteems the imperturbable, now when a person is interested in the imperturbable, only talk of that kind interests him. And he is thinking and exploring is in line with that. He frequents that kind of person and he finds satisfaction through him. Well, obviously, if one really gets interested in the spiritual path and, <coughs> and the jhanas, one has to first, in our time and day and time, we have to be very lucky even to find out about them. Never mind then find somebody to talk about them. But in his Buddhist time, people did talk about these things. And he finds satisfaction when he talks to a person about the jhanas. But when there is talk about worldly material things, he will not hear or give ear or establish his mind and knowledge. He does not frequent that kind of person and finds no satisfaction through him. So in other words, one, this is the thing that is a great um, a cause for lament usually with people who have started to go on a spiritual path and then find that they haven't got much to talk about with their friends whom they've known for many years because the, what these friends talk about who have not gone on a spiritual path no longer interests one. And so the uh, thing that happens is that one makes new friends. And <clears throat> I, not, not often but quite uh, regularly, I get letters from meditators saying I can't find anybody to talk to. One of the things that happens then is that one looks for um, one looks for a community of people who where one can talk to them. Now, in the Buddhist time, obviously, this wasn't so difficult, and I would say that even today in India, it's not that difficult. I remember being in a train in India in a third-class compartment because it was cheap, and uh, there were a number of. Um, well, I don't know what they were, but they didn't look very wealthy or, or, or well-educated, these people. And, uh, in fact, they had a, one had a chicken with them, I can remember, on a string. And the, and, and the, the, it was just typical of India. And uh, the others had two kids, and it was, a bit, it was a bit of a mess. Anyway, the whole conversation was about their guru. And uh, they were talking about their, their guru, and luckily they were talking in English because they were from different areas of India and didn't speak the same dialect. So they had to speak English with each other so I could understand every word they were saying. And they, were, they had the same guru. I mean, one was one uh, lot was from the north and the other one was somewhere from the west or somewhere. And they discussed this guru and all the things that he was teaching them. And I mean, it was just very ordinary, poor people. You know, this... Uh, not something that you would probably meet up with it, you know, on the train going from Vandaloon to Sydney. I don't think that people talk about their gurus there. So anyway, that was, I mean, that's in this day and age. So India does have that quality even today, that people are more interested on, in fact, are 
it is a it is a quality of life there it may not amount to a great enlightenment but it is a quality of life in India so he says now if you are interested in that you are not going to talk about material things and he's giving another simile just as a yellow leaf shed from its attachment is incapable of becoming green again when a yellow leaf has fallen down so too when a person esteems the imperturbable he has shed the fetter of worldly material things so when one really esteems the jhanas then the fetter of worldly material things has been shed because there's not not interesting anymore so too he should be known as a person not bound by the fetter of worldly things who esteems the imperturbable. So that is more understandable that we call the worldly things a fetter. But um, Buddha calls the others also a fetter. Now it is possible that some person may esteem the base consisting of nothingness. So the Buddha here in this particular sutta starts at the seventh jhana. He doesn't even pay any attention to the first six, which is quite interesting. <laughs> because man is still working maybe on the first or second or third, and here it talks about the seventh. Anyway, may esteem the base consisting of nothingness. When a person esteems the base consisting of nothingness, only talk of that kind interests him, and his thinking and exploring is in line with that. But when there is talk, about the imperturbable, he will not hear or give ear or establish his mind in knowledge. Now, this is why it said that here in this particular sutta, the imperturbable goes up to the sixth jhana. Nicht störbar, es ist ungestört, un imperturbable to be perturbed is uh, um, of erregt sein and imperturbable is uner- nicht erregt sein das unerregbare yeah that is better unerregbare okay so here we actually this is the reason why it said in that footnote that here in this particular sutta the imperturbable means the first six jhana that's why he starts at the seventh so if we are interested in the seventh jhana, one is no longer interested in the first six, he says. <laughs> so, and he, he wants to explore along those lines, and he frequents that kind of person and finds satisfaction there. And when there's talk about the imperturbable, he won't listen and establish his mind in knowledge. He does not frequent that kind of person, finds no satisfaction to him. Well, obviously, if one can do the first six, one is no longer interested to discuss that or find out how to do it, because one now wants to know about the seventh. Just as a thick stone cracked in two cannot be joined together again, so too, when a person esteems the base consisting of nothingness, his fetter of the imperturbable is broken. So too, he should be known as a person not bound by the fetter of the imperturbable, who esteems the base consisting of nothingness. Now that's an interesting part here, because when we see in this particular sutta that the imperturbable means the first six uh, jhanas, and the Buddha calls them fetters, and it's the fetters only broken at the seventh one, we can see now 
that one actually has to get to the seventh and eighth. Now, he doesn't always say that. He has said at other times that it is possible to become enlightened after the first, after the second, third, any one of them. But he, here he says that the, the first six are a fetter unless they result in the seventh. They are a fetter for one reason that one can see quite clearly, particularly one should say the first three, because they can give rise to attachment to pleasant feelings because we've got plenty of unpleasant feelings in our life, so that when we do get these pleasant feelings, one can become attached to them. That doesn't mean that one doesn't know intellectually that one needs to do more. The intellect and the feelings are often not compatible. What we know and what we can do is usually miles apart. And so then when there is that understanding in the mind, yes, well, that's not enough, first, second, third, jhana, that's all very well, I have to go further. But inside there is a feeling of, oh, I really like it, I want to stay with this. And sometimes people do find it difficult to go further. Fortunately, in the West that is rare, most people have an innate curiosity to go further. In the East, it's very common to be satisfied with the um, attainment of the first three or four jhanas and not go any further and not even look for insight because it is very pleasant it's much better than anything one can get otherwise it doesn't cost anything and uh, doesn't have to be imported no customs duty it's all very important (laughs) I mean (laughs) so it's it's all, it's all very, very good for them. But that's why the Buddha also uses the word feta so that one can see that there is a certain danger of being fettered by this. Now, obviously, the base of nothingness is no longer a fetter. We'll see whether he says anything about it, but I don't think so. No, it doesn't say anything about it. Well, I'll, I'll explain why it is uh, why it is no longer a fetter. Because if there's nothing, what is one going to get attached to? There's nothing to get attached to. Now, in the first jhana, there is pleasant feeling. Sure, it's easy to get attached to that. Most people don't. The second one is joy. Well, that's very easy to get attached to. The third one is, is contentment and the beginning of peacefulness. Well, you can get attached to that. Fourth one is stillness. Sure, one can get attached to that. Fifth one is infinite space. Well, infinite space is also very interesting. It's impossible to get attached to that. that. There is something. Then the next one is infinite consciousness. Well, at least there is something. There's infinite consciousness. But the seventh one, there's nothing. So there's nothing to get attached to. It's a base of nothingness. And the base of nothingness does um, appear as not that nothing happens. That's not it at all. It just appears that within infinite space and within infinite consciousness, which are the two preceding ones, there's nothing that can be grasped, nothing that can be hung on to, there's nothing that has any form or substance. So within all that, there is the void of 
substance. And because of that, there is no way that one can get attached to that. And one, I have never heard of anyone, and apparently that is so, that one should have any, any clinging to this. There's nothing to cling to. When there's nothing, what does one cling to? So all the other six are still being regarded as slippers. Sometimes the word imperturbable has been used for all of them, but never the word feta. The word feta, apparently, uh, in only in this particular sutta, I've never seen it before, uh, for the first six jhanas. Hmm? The first three, what they're like. Yes, well, uh, what I was describing was their content. The first one is pleasant sensation or delightful sensation. And the second one is uh, joy. And the third one, contentment. But uh, these are my explanations. Well, yes, I mean, they do uh, jive with what the Buddha says to... Only I'm, I'm simplifying Now, it is possible that some person here may esteem the base consisting of neither perception nor non-perception. When a person esteems the base consisting of neither perception nor non-perception, only talk of that kind impressed him, and his thinking and exploring is in line with that. He frequents that kind of man, finds satisfaction through that person. When there is talk about the base consisting of nothingness, he will not hear or give ear or establish his mind in knowledge. He doesn't frequent that kind of person and finds no satisfaction through him. Now the base consisting of neither perception or non-perception is the eighth jhana, is the last of the jhanas, and it is very little that can be said about it. The Buddha doesn't say anything about it except giving it that name because one isn't perceiving, but one is also not non-perceiving, which means one is not unconscious, one is also not in a trance, but because there is no feeling and no, um, no physical feeling and also no emotion and also no thought, the thought process is not there, there is also no perception there and there is nothing to perceive. So it is the jhana in which the greatest restfulness exists which brings the greatest energy. And it's also something one can't get attached to because it, one doesn't even know what's happening actually and it's not very interesting, but it brings enormous mind energy, enormous mind clarity, because the mind gets the perfect rest. It's, uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't use, it doesn't have any, of course, no sense contact, that's obvious. Um, the five khandas, all five khandas, are almost laid to rest. And with that, one has, of course, a preview of what it's like when there isn't any hanging on and any clinging to the conduct. So what the Buddha is saying here is one is interested in that one, one isn't going to talk about the nothingness one because one's got left that behind one. Just as a man who's eaten some delicious food and thrown it up, what do you think, Sanakata? Would that man have any desire to eat that food again? No, Venerable Sir. Why is that? Because, Venerable Sir, that food is reckoned as repulsive. 
So too, when a person esteems the base of consisting of neither perception nor non-perception, his fetter consisting of the base of nothingness is rejected. So here he actually calls the nothingness also a fetter. Um, and he, he makes it a, a simile to being repulsive. Um, I, w- I think that it might not be quite the perfect translation. I would say more non-interesting. The, uh, the nothingness is no longer interesting because one has done it. Now one is interested in the next one. So he too rejected should be known as a person not bound by the fetter of the base consisting of nothingness who esteems the base consisting of neither perception nor non-perception. This whole uh, sequence is trying to show that when one has done one step, one realizes that one needs to do the next step. And that the step one has done becomes habitual and is no longer uh, of, of such great impact as it may be well as it certainly is when one hasn't done it in fact I have I've heard a teacher once read something like this out of this one of these books and say on nothingness and neither perception or non-perception or whatever that means and in other words no idea what it could possibly mean so it seems like something fantastic and great And then when one has done it the first time, it may still seem like something fantastic and great, but then as one becomes used to it, it's the habitual and it's no longer something that one is trying to um, find any more information about. But one certainly wants to know the next one. So what is shown is that it's a progression. The mind knows it's got to go on. It's a progression of things. It is possible that some person here may rightly esteem Nibbana. Now this is very important to know. Now we've come to the eighth jhana and in most uh, religious or spiritual uh, teachings uh, that those eight jhanas are, or the eighth one particularly, are considered the um, pinnacle, the pinnacle of experience. One, uh, it's often considered to be having come or having merged into God or having merged into Atman or having lost all selfhood but the Buddha says no it's not like that because one comes out again obviously when the meditation is finished one comes out again and as one comes out again the selfhood reappears one has to get rid of that selfhood in a different way now, it is possible that some person here may rightly esteem Nibbana. When a person rightly esteems Nibbana, only talk of that kind interests him, and his thinking and exploring is in line with that, and that person frequents such people where he can find satisfaction. But when there is talk about the base consisting of neither perception nor non-perception, he won't hear, give ear, or establish his mind in knowledge. He doesn't frequent those people and finds no satisfaction through them. Now, uh, what is uh, also has to be remembered is that the Buddha himself went to two teachers, uh, meditation teachers, and spent six years with them. And the first one taught him up to the seventh, up to the base of nothingness, and then said, well, that's all. There's no more. 
in the spiritual life. This is far one can go. Now you can be the teacher. And the Buddha said no. Uh, he wasn't the Buddha then. He was a Bodhisattva. He said no, that can't be all. There must be something else. So he went to another teacher and the next one taught him the eighth jhana. And then when he had finished with that, that one also said, you know, you've done it. That's it. And now you can be teacher. And the Bodhisattva, which he was then, said no, there must be more. So uh, he went off on his own. He couldn't find a teacher. He went off on his own and found insight. So what he what is being also expressed here is that we go the way through the jhanas, which is expressed over and over again. It never misses that he mentions that. But that we then uh, recognize the fact that there is something more, that there is nibbana. Inside in Buddhist terminology means recognizing anicca dukkha impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and substancelessness, which in the end results in being able to give up the illusion that here sits a personal entity which is an individual. All that sits here is a process of mind and body. Well, that has to be more than intellectual in order to mean anything. As long as it's intellectual, it's nothing. Because it can't be used. But once it is, it is experiential, one can use it. And it shows itself in that one doesn't want things and one doesn't uh, get perturbed about not getting them and those kind of things. So it's giving up this idea that there is a person. So now, and the insight that the Buddha proclaimed when he was, when he became enlightened, are called the Four Noble Truths and the Noble Eightfold Path. It's a little unfortunate um, to come in at the end <laughs> of something like this. He should have come in at the beginning, you know. The, uh, the impermanence and dukkha and non-self, well, anybody can talk about it, but feeling it's a totally different matter. Everybody who hasn't got it knows that they, are, that they themselves are getting up in the morning. And everybody who hasn't felt the non-self knows that, that they get uh, depressed or worried or anxious or angry or bored or disinterested. But then when the other hand feels these things, he knows that it's just a momentary mood in the mind and it has no, no impact. So knowing it and feeling it are miles apart. See, the knowing can come anytime. Whenever we talk about it, it's a knowing. You understand that? The difference between the knowing and the feeling? So when one is... Um, when one is interested in Nibbana, then one wants to talk about that. Huh? One wants to find out about it. One is no longer interested in finding out about the jhanas. Why? Because one has done them. One needs no further instructions. 
one needs instructions about Nibbana. Just as a palm tree with its top cut off is incapable of growing, so too, when a person rightly esteems Nibbana, his fetter of the base consisting of neither perception nor non-perception is cut off, cut off at the root, made like a palm stem, made non-existent, not subject to arising in the future. Well, I would say that despite this footnote that the first six are meant, I would say that all eight are meant again with the imperturbable. But that's what's usually the case. Imperturbable means all eight jhanas, and all eight are considered to be a setter because only Nibbana is that what the um, goal is. So that person should be known, not bound by the fetter of the base consisting of neither perception nor non-perception, who rightly esteems Nibbana. This particular um, jhana, this eighth one, is a, um, simply a result of concentration. It's, um, the concentration becomes so sharp and so fine that all the aspects of the mind are almost cut off. That's why it's called neither perception nor non-perception. There is still that little bit of an observer there, but it's very, so subtle one cannot say what the observer has observed. <coughs> but it's possible to say that there was an observer. And that is the difference between the past moment and the jhanas, because the past moments are also jhanas, jhanic moments, con- con- very tight concentration. In the past moment there's no observer. So the past moment cannot even be described, it's only the fruit moment that can be described, but the, the eighth jhana can still be described by this very <coughs> awkward title of neither perception nor non-perception, it's a bit awkward, but that's what it's called. <coughs> now, it is possible that some monk might think that craving has been called a doubt by the Buddha, the poisonous doubt of ignorance shows its disturbedness by desire and greed and by ill will. That doubt of craving is abandoned in me. That poison of ignorance is expelled. I am one who rightly esteems Nibbana. Now, as one who has overestimated what is not actually true, he would resort to things unsuitable in one who rightly esteemed Nibbana. He would resort to unsuitable seeing of visible objects, unsuitable sounds with the ear, odors with the tongue, uh, sorry, with the nose, unsuitable taste with the tongue, (coughs) unsuitable tangibles with the body, unsuitable dhammas with the mind. When he does so, greed would infect his mind. When his mind infected by greed, he would incur death and deadly suffering. So now the Buddha is explaining how it would appear when a person has overestimated their achievement, that they think they have fully, are fully enlightened, and because they are saying that they are not ignorant anymore, they know already that craving is not a good thing, and, um, and they know already that this ignorance is, gets, 
it shows itself through greed and uh, ill will and desire. And he says, now this is abandoned. But if this is not true, then it would show itself. It would show itself through what the person wants to see, what the person wants to hear, what the person wants to smell, what the person wants to eat, taste, taste, what the person wants to touch, and for mainly what the person is thinking. Unsuitable dhammas with the mind. So Buddha says uh, such a person would get greed in the mind and that would incur death and deadly suffering. But the death and deadly suffering is not physical death. The death and deadly suffering is the death in the dispensation of the Buddha. Because to overestimate oneself and actually declare, and this is not thinking, I mean, mind mind moments are so uh, fleeting, they can happen. But actually declare openly that one is Arahant fully enlightened and not the Arahant fully enlightened is, uh, is such a gross um, gross overstatement of one's own ability that one is, the Buddha says one will be cut off from the practice. So anyone who thinks they're enlightened would not continue to practice. And if they don't continue to practice, then, of course, they're dead in the dispensation of the Buddha. That's what this death means. It doesn't mean physical death. Now, he's giving a, a, a simile. Suppose a person were wounded by a dart, thickly smeared with poison. Then his friends and companions, relatives and kin, would bring a surgeon physician and he would cut round the wounds opening with a knife. And when he had cut round the wounds opening with a knife, he would probe for the dart. And having probed, he would pull out the dart. And he expelled the poison with some traces, with some traces left. It makes reference to being, to being alive. And knowing that some trace was left, he would say, Good man, your dart has been pulled out. The poison has been expelled with some trace left, but not enough to be a... Left for your eating unsuitable food, uh, the wound should um, suppurate. Wash the wound from time to time. Anoint the wound's opening from time to time. Otherwise, pus and blood should clot the wound. And do not go walking in the wind and sun, because dust and grit could infect the wound. You must live to guard your wound, good man, to heal your wound. And this person would think, My dart has been pulled out, expelled with some trace left, but not enough to be a danger. And then he'd eat unsuitable food, and then he would not wash the wound, wouldn't anoint the wound, he would go walking in the wind and sun, and would not live to guard the wound. And then both, through his doing what was unsuitable, owing to this poison, having been expelled with some left behind, his wound swelled, and with its swelling, he incurred death and deadly suffering. So too it is possible that some bhikkhu here might think thus, craving is called a dart by the Buddha, the poisonous 
humor of ignorance shows its disturbedness by desire, greed, and ill will. That thought of craving is abandoned in me. The poisonous humor of ignorance is expelled. I am one who rightly esteems Nibbana. Now as one who has overestimated what is not actually true, he would resort to things unsuitable, and with his mind infected with greed, he might incur death and deadly suffering. For it is death in the noble one's discipline when one renounces the training and reverts to what has been abandoned, and it is deadly suffering when one commits some defiling offense. One is dead in the noble one's discipline when one renounces the training. An arahant renounces the training. A fully enlightened one stops training. So if one thinks one is enlightened and one stops training, then of course one reverts to what already has been abandoned and then it's um, um, suffering and death. And it is possible that some monk might think craving is called a doubt by the Buddha, but I am one who rightly esteems Nibbana, and he would not resort to things unsuitable. He would not resort to unsuitable seeing of visible objects, unsuitable sounds with the ear, unsuitable odors with the nose, unsuitable flavors with the tongue, unsuitable tangibles with the body. He would not resort to unsuitable dhammas in the mind. When he would not do so, greed would not infect the mind. With his mind uninfected by greed, he would not incur death and deadly suffering. And then he gives that whole uh, story of this doubt with the poison again, and the doctor telling him to do all these things, and the person would do them. And he would actually look after this uh, wound and have it heal, and uh, it would be covered with skin because he's looking after it properly. And so if one rightly esteems Nibbana, one would never do anything unsuitable. In other words, what he's trying to uh, give the uh, instruction with is to say, you can see whether a person is enlightened, because they would never do anything with the six senses. Never with the six senses which could be considered to be greed-arousing, uh, that it could not, it would never be, they would not arouse greed. Um, you wouldn't see that there is any greed in them for being recognized or for being famous or for being loved or for being um, having greed of any sort, even the physical greed. So then the Buddha says, The simile has been given by me in order to make known a meaning. This is the meaning. Wound is a term for the six internal bases, the six senses. The poisonous humor is a term for ignorance. Doubt is a ter- term for craving. The probe with which the poison has been taken out is a term for mindfulness. Knife is a term for noble understanding. And the surgeon's physician is a term for the Tathagata, Arahant, and fully enlightened. The Buddha is sometimes called uh, uh, the great surgeon, the great physician, and the Dhamma, the great medicine. Now, when a person practices restraint in the six bases of contact and is without the essentials of existence, liberated with the exhaustion of the essentials of existence, through seeing them as a root of suffering, 
it is not possible that he would either employ his body or bestir his mind about any essential of existence. Now this is a <coughs> very um, final statement. The essentials of the existence are said by the commentary to be our five aggregates, without them we can't exist, the essential desire, our mental defilements, and karma, intentional actions. So this is what the, um, the commentary says are the, the essentials of existence. And liberated with the exhaustion of the essentials of existence, but what is actually far more logical than what the commentary says, the commentary is not always logical, um, is that the essentials of existence are our three cravings. The craving to be, the craving for essential gratification, and the craving not to be. The craving not to be comes about when, we, when everything goes wrong with us and we think, oh, well, let them see how they get along without me. That's the craving not to be. It's just the other side of the same coin of the craving to be. So that's the essential of existence. As long as we have those cravings, we exist. And we will exist over and over again. That's the essential of existence. Now, when we practice restraint in the six spaces of contact, that's of course our sense of contact, huh? the six spaces of contact, and we, and is without the essential of existence, without those cravings, liberated with the exhaustion of the essential of existence. Through seeing the essentials of existence as a root of suffering, it is not possible that he would either employ his body or bestir his mind about any essential of existence. An enlightened person, having seen that these three cravings, well, let's say two, because the two cravings the craving to be here and to be somebody and the craving to have our essential desires gratified, those two um, are, can be seen as the cause for all dukkha. And to be without them means to be fully enlightened. Now particularly, and one of them, which is the, the uh, craving for essential desire, for essential gratification, has to be helped along on the way by um, restraining the sense spaces, the six spaces of contact, the six sense spaces, the restraint, calming the senses. That has to be is the pathway towards getting rid of this craving for sensual gratification. And the uh, pathway to getting rid of the craving to be is to see again and again when the jhanas are being practiced that there is nobody there, especially in 5, 6, and 7, and 8, of course, also, that there's nobody there, that, that is just, there just is. There isn't anybody particularly in it. And the other pathway, which is a little less um, exalted and more practical, is the pathway of giving oneself again and again, in loving kindness, in generosity, in helpfulness. This is the giving of the self to others, which does not reduce the self because, uh, rem sorry, remove the self because the self is doing all this, but it certainly reduces the, the self-concern. It reduces it and thereby reduces problems. 
So these are two parts. There's one is the jhanas is essential without them it doesn't work. But the first aspect is also the giving of oneself. But the giving of oneself without expecting results. As long as we want results, it's just um, again a sort of um, uh, marketplace activity where we want to um, get paid for our uh, endeavors. This time with gratitude and appreciation. So we just give ourselves. That's the, those two are the pathway towards getting rid of this craving to be. And only when we see that these cravings are the root of suffering, then are we able to um, say that, able to let go of them, and then a person is able to say they have become enlightened. Any questions about anything? I haven't quite finished with it, but I need to go to Moscow. Any, any questions? In this sutra it seems uh, that you have to make the eight jhanas to get to enlightenment. It always says that, except one. There's one sutta, one only, which says that you can become enlightened after any one of them, but you have to have such insight that it is... Um, the insight has to be your strongest point. And the jhana is only a, a sort of a minor point. That is in one in one sutta. Mm. But yeah. usually it's like this. But they have, uh, this sutta is a little bit <laughs> strange then because there are the seven stages of enlightenment except for first four jhanas. Yeah, so but how, the fourth. Yeah, no, that doesn't mean anything. The four, the fourth one, is always considered to be the springboard for the next. Well, you probably do. If you if you do it, you probably get it anyway. If you're enlightened, you can probably sit in all the jhanas without half trying. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, in the Buddha's time. In the Buddha's time. But that is a, a, a mute point. The Buddha never mentions it. He never says it. There, there is in the, in the commentaries a, a story about uh, 394 dry vision arahants. And this dry vision arahants are the, well, it's a translation. And, uh, they are supposed to be people who didn't do the jhanas. And it's also, then there's another sub-commentary which says they did it in a past life. So they, uh, they, um, uh, it, it doesn't, it is very interesting that there is this one sutta which says that one can actually get enlightened after one or after first, second or third or fourth or any one of them. But uh, it is uh, quite out of keeping with the rest of them. The rest always talk about all. And when there's only four mentioned, it means eight. Four also means eight. Well, that was also in another sutta, that four always means eight. Because the fourth one is the springboard for the next four. So the, uh, the um, fourth is not enough yet.
Well, that's good timing. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, well, there, there is a sutta. We did read it at some stage. I can't remember where and when. We did read it. And uh, the, uh, the answer that to that can only be that the person who gains enlightenment through the, uh, the insight is then also able to do the jhana. They remain there. You see, when there are factors of enlightenment, they are your c- capacities that you can do all that and they're no longer your training so apparently according to that one sutta that that training for that kind of person wasn't necessary that was although it says in the sutta also that it is very difficult very difficult to do it and uh, that the uh, and that particular sutta only goes to the fourth sanjana. But it says again that the, this is the four eight are meant. This, that is always the case, that this four eight are meant. And they are not, uh, you see now the seven factors of enlightenment are not all the factors of enlightenment. There are 37 factors of enlightenment. Seven are only seven of the 37. And uh, the, um, so there's more that is needed. Uh, Thirty-seven are needed, and presumably that the person who has enlightenment can just sit down and do the jhanas and doesn't use them to get there, but just has them. It's also the difference between panya vimutti and chetu vimutti. Panya vimutti is the liberation through insight, and chetu vimutti is liberation through the uh, heart. And that is the one that goes through the jhanas and loving kindness and panyavimuti through insight, but both merge at the apex and both can do the same thing then. So the one that has insight may not be using the jhanas for the, his springboard to go there, but can do them when they when they finish the when they finish the job. Anyway, that's the way I, I can only understand it. But 99% of all the discourses tell to go through the jhanas, well, this one particularly. I mean, this one says quite clearly that, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't even start with the lower ones, it starts at the seventh one. <laughs> it takes the first six for granted. Hmm? Okay, anything else? Quite clear what to do, huh?